Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. While making a documentary about the Anglo-American coup in Iran in 1953, director Taghi Amirani and editor Walter Mersch discovered extraordinary, never-before-seen archival material that has been hidden for decades. The 16-millimeter footage and documents they uncovered not only allow them to tell the story of the overthrow of the Iranian government in an unprecedented detail, but it also led to the explosive revelations about dark secrets buried for 67 years. And the result of all of that is this wonderful documentary called Coup 53. And we're joined today by the director, Taghi Amarani, as well as the writer and editor, Walter Mersch. To both of you, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so very much. Uh, this is a, an event in world history that is profoundly affected our lives and our world since in those 67 years. But it's also a story that has been either become so obtuse or so filled with so much disinformation or many other factors have come into play and also seen through the filter of our relationship with Iran today uh, that very few people actually understand or even really know much about what happened. And I'll start with you, Tagi. Tell us why this is such an important event in world history. Well, uh, the, the, the Iranian coup of 1953 not only shaped Iranians' mindset about their place in the world and their relationship with the West, and, and also within their, the community itself, within the population, their relationship with the king, who they had for the next 25 years that led to the revolution, uh, it led to the revolution itself, and that's shaped Iran's relationship, a very poisonous and toxic relationship that we are experiencing even to this day, even to this week. I think they're discussing new sanctions and there's more powwow, which may well accelerate as the election gets closer because we always need uh, a foreign enemy when elections come up. We need somebody else to distract the audience from, uh, the electorate from. Um, it's affected Iran's uh, internal politics uh, for 67 years. Iran was on the verge of, uh, of some kind of democratic process. There was, it, democracy was, it, was, it, was in its infancy in, in the early 50s in Iran with the, with the election of Mossadegh for electoral reform and also for nationalizing oil. But that was nipped in the bud. You know, that baby was killed before it could walk. And uh, we are living with the consequences. Uh, the coup was also a template uh, for future coups because it, it, at the time it was seen as cheap, easy, and a resounding success. And they figured, well, we can do all this without going to war, without putting boots on the ground and spending money. Let's do it again. And it became you know, Guatemala in 54 and other countries, Chile in 73. So with everything we're living with, in Iranian relationships with the West, particularly with Britain and America, is rooted in 53. Yeah. Walter, I'll ask you, but before I ask you about your involvement, how you came to this project, it is in some ways, if you look at the American empire, right at the establishment of the American empire after World War II, this is kind of the big bang of our foreign policy moving forward in so many different ways. Um, at least from my opinion. Um, Walter Mersch, how, how did you um, get involved? What inspired you to uh, take part in uh, Coup 53? 
I, I was the editor of Sam Mendes's film Jarhead, which was about the first Gulf War in 91. <clears throat> and so working on that film, I had read up on the history of Middle Eastern oil and geopolitics just to ground myself in understanding what was going on. So I, I already knew something about it and that working on Jarhead deepened that. And I had met Tagi in New York in 2012 when I was working on another documentary about physics, about the search for the Higgs boson. And uh, Tagi and I met at a party at the gentleman who was an investor in both Higgs boson film, Particle Fever, and in Coup 53. Tagi graduated in physics from Nottingham University. We started talking physics. He helped us get into a festival uh, uh, where the Particle Fever won the Audience Award, and we kept in touch after that. And I was at Loose Ends after a project in 2015, and my wife is English, <clears throat> and uh, Tagi and she put their heads together and said, why don't, Walter, why don't you go to, we all go to London and work on this little documentary <clears throat> about uh, the coup of 53. And so I thought, great. And of course, a prospective maybe six months of work turned into five years, but that's what happens. As I mentioned earlier, it is an unscripted documentary, and that's particularly rich territory for a film editor because you you get to write co-write the story. Tagi and I worked on, on the story together. Um, and that's, that's a very satisfying uh, experience. Well, my compliments to you as a writer to both of you, because this is a, is a very difficult, a lot of different moving parts in terms of telling this story. And it's laid out beautifully. So, um, Tagi, I'll ask you, what was sort of the first thread that you pulled on in order to sort of begin getting a handle, getting your arms around a story like this, what's the first step that you take as a filmmaker? Well, uh, I, I tend not to research, you know, uh, Walter was talking about scripted documentaries. Scripted documentaries by nature are researched and a lot of things are found and you write it. You write it even before you sometimes shoot it. I, I don't work that way. I, I like to kind of uh, fly by the seat of my pants and discover and go with the thrill of the ride. Uh, I just had a notion that I want to tell the story. And in fact, at the beginning, it wasn't even a documentary. This was going to be my foray in my first feature. And this was, it was going to be a dramatic feature. I was going to research the material and write a screenplay. And then in my research, I found out that uh, Mossadegh's bodyguard, who features in the film, uh, I was in L.A., and I found out that he's visiting his son from Iran, and he's, he's visiting his son in Calabasas, uh, and, uh, and he's in his late 80s. So I thought he'd be good for research. Uh, so I rented a camera and drove up the hill and sat down and talked to him for about five or six hours on camera. By the end of which I thought, whoa, this guy is so eloquent and so passionate and his memory is so vivid and it's so visceral and so present. And he was there during the coup. Why would I in my right mind get an actor to be him? So I ditched the fiction idea and went back to what I know documentary. So he was the trigger. And, and I thought, well, there must be more people like him. And if there are people more like him, they might have photographs, they might have video, they might have, I don't know, they might have stories, documents. And that opened the road to finding more people. And it became the monumental research project that it turned out to be. More people, more archive, more footage, more documents, more everything. And I went back to what I know, which is documentary. Well, in that conversation with him, it, obviously, 
must have triggered a, a lot of uh, different reactions in you because I say that because this is a story that's been told, quote unquote, told many times over in many ways. So there must have been something about what he said and what went on in your mindset about how he was telling it. That's I can tell a more complete story. Did you have any idea you'd be able to kind of take this degree of a deep dive into this subject? Uh, when did that sort of dawn on you if it wasn't then? Yeah, you're right. This, this story has been told in different documentaries, mostly television documentaries, not in the full length, like a feature length cinematic experience with all the bells and whistles that, you know, you can bring to that cinematic experience. So that's one thing. The other is that uh, uh, there have been like over 200 books written about this. So it, it's out there. Uh, what, what interested me was going where no one has gone before like almost like Star Trek, boldly go and and finding people who've never been interviewed and most of the pre previous documentaries haven't found uh, the bodyguard in that way, haven't found the man who was a mobster on the street who was paid to rabble rouse, have, yeah. didn't find the guy who uh, was the captain of the ferry boat that evacuated the evacuated the British on the day they left. So, uh, or the doctor, Mossadegh's doctor who actually watched him die in his final days. So these are like real gold mine of uh, oral history and you know, history. So it's that depth that was interesting to me and, 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 and layering it in, 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 in ways that hadn't been layered. Of course, the thriller element, the investigative element emerged in the, in the shooting and the editing and the research. Everything you see is unfolding as it's happening. Yeah. And Walter and I, we were having a real exciting, thrilling time because you're going this way, you find something, it shifts the ground, it changes the way you're telling the story, you suddenly find you're in this weird meta layer of putting stuff in the film with you in it and then folding it back on itself. And you know, it, 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 it's, it still baffles me as how it's working. Well, well, I'm going to go back to Walter Mersch because I have a feeling he knows a thing or two about putting together complex stories and editing them in a way that is is relatable and and uh, for and easy for people to digest. Walter, uh, how much material did you have to sift through? And I'm just kind of curious from the technical part of editing, what were the biggest challenge that you had in putting together Coup 53? Yeah, well, material started coming in right away uh, as soon as Tuggy started shooting he but by the time I was on the film he'd already shot perhaps 60 hours of material but I think even as we were doing the final mix more material was coming in this is like four years later uh, so in the end when we tallied everything up it was 532 hours of material which is interviews archive and ancillary uh, material, which is more than double what I had on Apocalypse Now. So, uh, you know, that alone is just a challenge in terms of making sure that nothing ever gets lost with that much uh, material uh, to deal with. And um, it, it, as the story unfolds, it, as Taggy mentioned, it transforms itself in in the process and so that's exciting but it's also you you have to keep track of so many different things because as you said there's lots of moving parts so we did a first assembly of, of all of the material which was eight and a half hours long and at, it was i think we had that in june of 2018 
And at that point, we sat back and said, well, what is this? Is, is this a, a six-part Netflix series? Um, uh, or is it something else? And, and at that point, we also looked at how much money we had and how much time we had. And it was also then that the real significance of the character of Norman Derbyshire began to emerge. We hadn't yet cast Ray Fiennes in that role, but we had the, had the document uh, and we had a scratch track of that, of, a, of an actor reading those lines. Um, but then once uh, the idea of Ray Fiennes emerged, then everything kind of coalesced around him because not only is he a preeminent actor, he is acting the part of the preeminent person who ran the coup. Yes. So there's a real dovetailing of, the, you know, the fame of Ray Fiennes matching, in a sense, the relative fame of this person, because Derbyshire was not just a foot soldier. He was the guy who sat down, one of the two people who wrote the whole plan for how to get rid of Mossadegh. And this was taken to Churchill and then to Eisenhower, and they finally rubber stamped it on July 11th of 1953, and off they went. Awesome. Uh, so that that was the real uh, uh, the vice that really allowed us to pull eight hours down to just under two hours. Well, that is the meat of the documentary, and I want to get into that. But before we do, I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Tagi Amarani and Walter Mersch. Um, Tagi is the director, and um, Walter Mersch is the editor and writer. I believe you both co-wrote. If I, I got that correct, correct, you co-wrote the, uh, um, the the film is called Coup Fifty Three. And let's let's talk about um, Mossadegh and the, the sort of the the broad strokes of the history of oil in the Middle East in in regard to Iran and and, and the British involvement. Uh, a little bit. I don't I don't want to I don't want to turn this into a too long of a um, dissertation on that, but Tagi, do you want to sort of frame this whole thing? What, why, why was Mossadegh in power, and how did he come to power, and um, and the significance well, of that? Well, uh, by the time he came to power, the British had been controlling and exploiting Iranian oil for nearly fifty years. The Anglo-Iranian oil company, before it was called Anglo-Persian, it became Anglo-Iranian. It is now known as BP. If anyone wants to know, BP was born in Iran. Uh, never forget that. Uh, at the time, the Anglo-Iranian oil company was Britain's biggest overseas asset. It really was fueling British economy. British Navy converted from coal to oil on Iranian oil. It was paying off uh, Britain's debts after the war. It was the jewel in the crown of the empire's overseas assets. Uh, and that's, that had gone on for, for like nearly 50 years. You know, it, it was discovered in 1908. By the time Mossad came to power, the, the Iranians were, were very resentful of not just the exploitation of their natural resource, but also by the way they were being treated. Because Anglo-Iranian wasn't just an oil company. It was almost like a state within a state. The British were interfering in every level of Iranian society, culturally, politically, and economically. He, his only ticket for election was nationalizing oil. He, he came to power on... You elect me, I, want to, I will nationalize oil. In fact, it was that that got him, got him you know, voted in parliament to become prime minister. Two, two things on his ticket, 
nationalizing oil and reforming the electoral system because he wanted to reform the way parliament was choosing MPs because at the time the British were also bribing people to get them in power in parliament as MPs. So he came, that's, that's his context. He came to power on nationalizing the oil. It was April 1951 and it immediately uh, led to the nationalization which triggered the, uh, the standoff between the British, uh, a summer of upheaval and back and forth and negotiations. Uh, and it was very early in the days that the British thought, we won't have this. We're not gonna let this guy get away with this. He has to go. And uh, it led to the uh, evacuation and the expulsion of the British from the refinery. It was like, okay, you don't want, you don't, you're nationalizing oil, we're getting out, thinking the refinery was gonna shut down because those pesky Iranians can't even ride a bike, let alone run a refinery. It turned out they could. And they, you know, the engineers were pretty competent to do that. And then uh, the year later, he even kicked out the embassy stuff. He shut down the embassy and threw everybody out uh, because within the embassy were the MI6 agents bribing people and meddling, trying to stage the coup. And, um, and so finally, uh, from, uh, from 52 up, up to the summer of 53 is when the coup finally came, you know, became a reality. But the British, as we say, the man Donald Logan says, our, our plan was to get rid of him as soon as possible. It was like, this is not going to happen. And it was because they didn't want this to be replicated in other, other Middle Eastern countries. They didn't want to set an example. If he gets away with this, others will want the same. Uh, he inspired Nasser in Egypt. Uh, with the Suez Canal, uh, Nasser hero worshipped Mossadegh, and of course, of course, five years later, that's exactly what happened uh, with the Suez Crisis. Uh, so that's the context of oil, Mossadegh, and the trigger for the whole thing. Well, and, and I, may I add, this is also in the context of post-World War II. This is in the decline of the British Empire. It comes in the context of that. This is the, the beginning of the assertion of the U.S. military into the and the United States in general into the Middle East. So this is one of those stories that isn't told or talked about a lot. But in addition to the the end of World War II, there was another kind of sub-war going on between the United States and Britain and kicking them out of their previously held power structures in the Middle East. And the United States saw this as it's at the, at the, at the crown jewel. They saw Saudi Arabia and Iran as the crown jewel of American foreign policy. So in addition to all of the things you discussed, there was this other war going on, diplomatic and not as confrontational in a military way, but nonetheless, a very much a power struggle going on during all of this. Is that a fair assessment? That's a very fair assessment. In fact, the Americans only came on board to help the British get their oil back uh, on the condition of that they would have a slice of that cake. That's right. And that, that shifted the balance because uh, they did, you know, Britain was never the power, the absolute power, and uh, 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 Anglo-Iranian was not the absolute kind of controller of Iranian oil after the coup. Americans took 40%, and that gradually shifted the power. Britain started fading as a number one influential power in Iran. Uh, America grew, and, and that, that began the love affair between the Shah and America that all went for the next 25 years. Uh, and led to the revolution. Uh, the petrodollar was a key. Iran uh, kept selling oil to the Americans, and uh, and, and and then you know they sold him. They sold him arms. Uh, you know they sold him more arms than he could you know he could, he could shake his stick at. And so yeah, uh, Britain was not as, as as big a player in Iran right. uh, as America was. And in fact. That's why the other aspect of this coup is that because Britain has never acknowledged this role and it's never publicly said that we were, we were it, we, this was our coup, we just brought the Americans in, 
it became known as the CIA coup. It's still known as the CIA coup, and which is why America was the big baddie come the revolution. This was like, you guys put this guy in power, you supported him, you pulled off the coup in 53. That's why we hear death to America. Uh, I'm not condoning taking hostages. Nobody should take hostages. But what happened in the hostage crisis was a direct result of 53. Like I said at the very beginning of our interview, this is one of those world changing events, even though it's not talked about in that context. But this is something that had a profound effect and continues to resonate to this day. And, and the film does a beautiful job of framing the actual event in a way that expands it out into what, what I'm talking about. Um, in the last minute or so that I have with you, I, again, it's great, a great uh, documentary. I want to let people know that this film will be available starting August 19th, the anniversary of the coup, available through um, a virtual cinema. And you can go to the, the website, Coup53.com, right. We're having, we having a special premiere. If, if you think of the old days before lockdown, this is our premiere on the 19th with a live Q&A. No champagne and tuxedos, I'm afraid. And then, <laughs> uh, but on Friday the 21st, it opens. And it opens, opens, across, opens, opens across cinemas in the States. I say it's cinema, digital, virtual cinema. If right. they go to Coup53.com, there's an extensive list of all the local art houses uh, and indie cinemas that are, that are showing this film. And as a way of supporting those local art institutions, we want people to buy tickets from the, those cinemas online to support them because we're giving them 50% of the uh, ticket sales to support them in these difficult times. Uh, so it's a virtual digital release across America, UK, uh, Ireland, and Canada. Yeah. Walter, I want to go back to you uh, in terms of just kind of the um, the storytelling here. I, I don't even know if I have a great question for you. I just want to acknowledge how difficult this is of a story to be able to tell in the way that it's told in this film. And I, I would just, again, I've sort of asked you earlier, sort of the biggest challenge that you faced in putting aside the sort of the amount of material um, what was it about working on this project that you felt like really distinguishes it? Well, I, I have a, a mantra that I keep in the back of my head, which is sort of Zen, uh, and it's dense clarity or clear density. <laughs> uh, and that is a goal. Um, I mean, you can be clear, but if, if you don't have any guts, uh, it doesn't have enough substance. On the other hand, you can be very full of substance, but if there's no clarity, it just becomes a big confusing ball. So I'm, I'm at every level in terms of the structure and you know what you're looking at from moment to moment, try to be as clear as possible, but also to be as uh, you know, dense or significant, I guess that might be a better word, as, as possible. Absolutely. But it was, certainly was a challenge because it covers, as you know, almost uh, you know, 80 years of history in two hours. Well, and also the the humanity, and that's a tribute to both of you in terms of, Tage, your filmmaking and your the interviews that you do, and, and also just the humanity comes forth from the from the people that are in the film talking about uh, Mohammed Mossadegh and what, what the impact that it had and just so many other elements of the film that make it a success. And has there been any reaction, Iranian uh, reaction from the government or from people 
not no. yet. We've, had, uh, we've been rolling out in festivals and previews, and one of the most gratifying reactions has been when the film played in LA, which is where the highest uh, number of Iranian exiles uh, in the US live. Uh, we had an incredible standing ovation for, uh, from, from, from Iranians. But the, the most satisfying reaction also is uh, non-Iranians uh, who said, my God, I had no idea this happened. I had, this is, you've, told, you've turned my entire world upside down about how I look at Iran-US relations. Now I see what, why, why, what, what we're seeing unfold in the headlines. And also, uh, of course, this coup became a template in other countries. So people from you know, uh, South America or other countries who've had their governments meddled with and overthrown, and they come to me very emotional and say, you just told my story. Um, and that, that is amazing that from the, from the particular to the universal that you didn't see happening. Um, I want to thank both of you so very much for spending some time with us today. Tagi Amarani, as, as the director and co-writer, as well as Walter Mersch, the editor and the writer, co-writer is on this film, Coup 53. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Bye. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.